Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wired to be Weird, a podcast where we discuss the most recent research focused on a particular topic related to the brain. My name is Ian McLaughlin, and I'm a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, everyone. I'm Bo, a PhD holder in material science. Right, and it's been quite a while since our last podcast. Yeah, probably like two months. Yeah, yeah, something close to that. Uh, And without getting too sidetracked, I've started working on getting a different podcast up and running for the Penn Science Policy Group. And on top of that, I just submitted uh, another review article for the Journal of Neurochemistry, which will be published, I don't know, at some point in 2017. What was the topic? Well, it's kind of broad, uh, but basically it's the most fundamental aspect of the overall hypothesis that underlies my thesis work. And I'm guessing since you study anxiety and addiction that the paper has something to do with that. Yeah, that's right. So in, in a nutshell, there are a variety of relationships between anxiety disorders and addiction. And oftentimes people with mood disorders like depression, for example, or a generalized anxiety disorder, or like post-traumatic stress disorder, frequently also suffer from addiction. So in other words, conditions like depression and addiction are frequently what we call comorbid. That makes sense. If you're feeling depressed or anxious for whatever reason, I suppose it's not surprising that people might turn to drugs that make them feel better or to help cope, like self-medicating. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about everything we've talked about so far on this podcast, Everything we feel and think and perceive arises from the activities of circuits of brain cells devoted to those activities. Right. If there's one main message from your live streams on Periscope, it's that our brain is a network of circuits that all have activity that underlies various aspects of our consciousness. Uh, You always call it infrastructure or architecture. Yeah, that's right. And so given how frequently addiction and mood disorders occur simultaneously in folks, there's very likely a brain circuit that underlies both of those domains of psychiatric illnesses. And then I talk about various experiments that have identified one particular circuit in the brain that's involved in both in this review. Oh, cool. So it's like a particular circuit that has been implicated in things like depression and PTSD as well as addiction? Yeah, exactly. Addiction in general? Yeah, that's right. So so it's true that the various drugs people do recreationally they'll have some different, asp- different effects in our brain, but, but they also share some important characteristics, right? So at a minimum, they all alter the activity of dopamine releasing neurons in an area of the brain called the ventral midbrain. Okay, so if I remember correctly, ventral means the underside of the brain and midbrain refers to pretty much the middle of the brain. <laughs> right, so if you pretend your fist is your brain and your arm is your brainstem and spinal cord, your ventral midbrain is basically just ahead, just ahead of the bottom of your wrist. There are a ton of dopamine-producing neurons there. In, in the case of Parkinson's disease, the neurons that are dying as the disease progresses are right there in an area called the substantia nigra. Well, just next to the substantia nigra is a brain region called the ventral tegmental area. And that's where a lot of drug addiction-related dopamine signaling begins. All right, well, I think the plan is to talk specifically about cannabis today, which is a topic of great interest to many people. So why don't we go ahead and get started with that? Yeah, that's the plan. Well, maybe before getting too microscopic, why don't we talk a bit more broadly first? Like, I know that there are specific molecules in cannabis that are responsible for its effects. Uh, We hear about THC, for example. Uh, But I've also heard you talk on Periscope about there being more than just THC in cannabis. So let's let's go into that. Sure. Uh, So so cannabis is a very complex plant, and there are actually different species of cannabis. Uh, The most common ones you'll encounter in like a medical dispensary or or just like stores in some states at this point 
will be cannabis indica and cannabis sativa, often just called indica and sativa. Then there are a huge variety of strains of each of these, some of which have pretty entertaining names like cat piss, hog's breath, train wreck, strawberry cough, cheese, or, or purple urkel are <laughs> some of the ones that I found. But generally speaking, people tend to report that indicas induce feelings of calmness, uh, relaxation, and, and even lethargy. Sativas, on the other hand, tend to be associated with effects of like alertness, energy, and, and maybe even slightly more psychedelic effects. Um, however, indicas and sativas have been hybridized like repeatedly over the years. And so a, a typical strain that one might encounter at this point, uh, it'll have genetics from both indica and sativa origins. So if you're purchasing over-the-counter cannabis, you might not know what you're getting between sativa and Oh, oh yeah. I indicas. mean, sure. It, well, it, it's, it's just, it's, it, it's extremely rare at this point that, I mean, I, frankly, I don't know, but it's, it's extremely rare that you'll find just a, a pure indica or a pure sativa. And then just in the interest of being thorough, there's also a third species called Cannabis ruderalis, which produces extremely low levels of THC. And so one will like rarely encounter it um, these days. It does grow in a unique way though. So some folks have crossed ruderalis with other plants like indica or sativa to exploit the fact that it produces buds at a specific time that has nothing to do with light exposure. And when you say buds, what does that mean? Right, so cannabis has those like palm-like leaves, right, that are, you know, pretty classic. But at a certain point of maturity, cannabis indica and sativa will begin producing their version of flowers, which are called buds. Uh, and this is the most potent source of cannabinoids in the plant. It's a bit more complex than that, particularly with regards to breeding the plants, but the product that people end up consuming are these cannabis buds. Okay, so I imagine that the differences in effects with one species being a bit more stimulating, the other being more relaxing, it has something to do with how much THC is present in the plant, is that right? Yeah, it's very likely. And so, as you said, THC is just one over, I mean, I've seen some papers say over 200 cannabinoid molecules that have been identified in the plant. That is way more than I thought. 200? Yeah, yeah. And on top of cannabinoids, there are a huge variety of other types of molecules called terpenes. And terpenes are the molecules that are responsible for giving cannabis its infamous aroma. <laughs> the skunk smell. <laughs> right. And when people become a bit desensitized to that stronger smell, they can begin to identify other odors like pine or citrus. Uh, these differences are due to relative concentrations of these various terpene molecules. And, and these are molecules like pinene, limonene, or myrcene. So I bet that pining smells like pine and uh, limonene smells like citrus. <laughs> limonene? Limonene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I, I think you're right. Pinene does uh, smell like pine. <laughs> okay. And do all of these cannabinoids and terpenes have effects on people? Well, the molecule that seems to be most responsible for the psychoactive effects of cannabis is indeed THC or tetrahydrocannabinol. But other molecules like cannabidiol or CBD, cannabigerol or CBG, <laughs> and uh, can cannabichromine, uh, CBC, are being studied for potential medical applications. So those are all cannabinoids, right? And what about the terpenes? So yeah, the potential effects of terpenes aren't as well studied, uh, but there is an expectation that terpenes may well influence the pharmacological properties of cannabinoids. But overall, given how frequently indica and sativa have been crossed, chemists and geneticists have used ratios of THC and CBD in plants to categorize a plant into what they call chemotypes. 
Plants with a high level of THC relative to CBD, for example, is chemotype 1. An intermediate ratio is chemotype 2. And a low ratio is chemotype 3. And then there are plants in chemotype 4, which has can cannabigerol uh, as the, the primary cannabinoid. And then finally, chemotype 5 are plants that are like fibrous with almost no cannabinoids present. And, and geneticists have identified a particular part of the genome of the plant that seems to identify which chemotype a plant will fall into. So, so in other words, how much THC and CBD the plant will synthesize. And again, in the interest of being thorough, the plant actually produces acid forms of THC and CBD. So in the plant, there isn't THC specifically, it's actually tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, or THCA. Then, when it's heated or the plant's buds are dried, it becomes decarboxylated, which converts it into tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. Wait, so if you take a fresh plant and you eat it, you're actually eating the THCA. Well, I mean, there's probably going to be spontaneous concentrations of just THC that are just like sort of spontaneously de decarboxylated. But yeah, I mean, the plant is substantially less potent if it's just consumed straight, like like a salad or something like that. You know, that's why <laughs> you need to like cook it, right? And I mean, the, the chemistry gets a little bit more complex. Cannabinoids are fat soluble or lipophilic. And so that's why, you know, you always see can of butter. Um, and that's also probably why, you know, people smoke it. Um, but then just drying, it also uh, decarboxylates the, the acids. Okay, so obviously people consume pot in a bunch of different ways, some of which we just mentioned. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's, it's definitely most frequently smoked. And it can be smoked alone in pipes, in bongs, like, like water pipes, or rolled into joints, right? It's also sometimes smoked with tobacco, which of course has its own pharmacological properties given that it contains nicotine. It can also be inhaled by being vaporized, where it's heated specifically to the point at which cannabinoids are vaporized, along with the water vapor, and this avoids the combustion that smoking entails. But um, regardless, smoking and vaporizing produces about the same THC dose. But then, of course, it can be consumed in edibles, ranging from the sort of classic brownies and cookies to lollipops and sodas, and then even more exotic things like pizza sauce, olive oil, macaroons, uh, chewing gum, churro bites, beef jerky, Caviar, which was surprising to me. Fancy. Yeah. Uh, granola bars and, and bonbons. Oh, yeah. And then oh, there's some other green tea, uh, chili kits. And then there was just like a ton more. Like, I'm, I'm frankly pretty impressed with the creativity of these folks. <laughs> uh, but regardless of what it's cooked into, orally ingested cannabinoids, as with essentially all drugs, will be associated with a more gradual onset of effects. But there's a much higher conversion of THC to its primary active metabolite, 11-hydroxy-THC. Okay, when you say active metabolite, what does that mean? I, I assume that it's a molecule into which THC is converted that has its own activity? Yeah, that's exactly right. And 11-hydroxy-THC is more potent than THC and can cross the blood-brain barrier. So, as a result, consuming an edible made out of a particular strain of cannabis will have pretty different effects than smoking or vaporizing that same cannabis. Okay, so if you smoke it or vaporize it, then it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier? No, no, not quite. So if you smoke it or vaporize it, you're just getting mostly THC, you know, Delta-9 THC. And then, but if you eat that same cannabis, right, and it passes through your digestive system, your digestive enzymes convert THC, Delta-9 THC, into 11-hydroxy-THC which is even more potent and can also cross the blood-brain barrier, right? So the same THC molecules that would have been hitting your brain when you smoked or vaporized it, 
that those molecules are being converted into 11-hydroxy-THC and then getting up into your brain. So why should we care if it crosses the blood-brain barrier? Well, if it didn't cross the blood-brain barrier, right, if only delta-9-THC crossed the blood-brain barrier and not 11-hydroxy-THC, then there wouldn't really be any psychoactive effects of 11-hydroxy-THC. So the, the, the delta-9-THC just in you know, the plant when you smoke it, that would be the only thing that has any psychoactive effect. Right? And it could be converted into 11-hydroxy-THC, but if it could never cross a blood-brain barrier, you wouldn't even know it was there. You would just excrete it, right? Because it would never hit cannabinoid receptors in the brain. Okay, so 9 crosses the BBB. Right. And 11 also crosses the BBB. Correct. Okay. All right, so give us a history lesson here. So I know that several states have passed laws that change how they enforce cannabis legality. But how is cannabis made illegal in the first place? Yeah, there's a strange history to that. Um, it was actually legal until 1913 when California was the first state to prohibit it. And they were followed by Texas and Arizona. That's kind of funny because wasn't California the first state to legalize it? Yeah, for medical use. Oh, always ahead of the curve, California. <laughs> All right, so why was it made illegal then? Right, okay. So there are a bunch of conspiracy theories surrounding the prohibition of cannabis the most prominent of which involves William Randolph Hearst and DuPont, whom you might have heard of, joining forces to suppress the use of hemp to produce goods that would compete with their massive holdings in timber, paper manufacturing, and the newly invented nylon. Uh, however, this was based off of a book written by a person named Jack Herrera, and it is true that in 1920, a device called the decorticator was devised to facilitate the harvest and application of hemp, similar to like how the cotton gin rendered cotton a viable mass-produced crop, in fact, in 1929, the cover of Popular Mechanics had hemp as the new billion-dollar crop. However, there, there's just no solid evidence that there was ever any big conspiracy to outlaw hemp, let alone cannabis. And perhaps that's a story for like another podcast. It's kind of an interesting sort of mystery to try and work through. The main argument I've seen in peer-reviewed literature is that there was a very large influx of Mexican immigrants to the U.S. after the Mexican Revolution in 1910. And cannabis use was among the, the various features of their culture that distinguished them at the time. Additionally, cannabis was used among jazz musicians who tended to be minorities. There was a sort of prejudice against both the ethnic groups and the social movement associated with jazz. And I've seen some argue that prohibition of cannabis was one strategy to sort of target them. And then in 1932, the Federal Uniform State Narcotic Act was passed which promoted the passage of state laws in line with federal. And this was followed by the Federal Cannabis Tax Act passed in 1937, which outlawed the possession and sale of non-medical cannabis, which significantly curtailed its use. And then, in 1970, cannabis was classified as a Schedule I drug, meaning that, from the perspective of the government, it had no medical benefit, was highly addictive, and dangerous. And then this was followed soon thereafter by President Nixon's War on Drugs being instituted as federal policy, which some have argued led to funds from illicit cannabis sales being funneled into organized crime, which was observed during alcohol prohibition, for example. And so cannabis has been a Schedule I drug ever since 1970. However, since then, over the years, various states have passed laws that alter how cannabis use, production, and sales are regulated. But of course, that's only relevant at the state level, and doesn't federal law supersede state? Yeah, so, so due to the supremacy clause of the Constitution, right, I looked this up, of course, I'm not a lawyer, right? Uh, state courts are bound by federal law, and any time that there's any conflict, federal law is applied. 
So basically, the state laws are only effective so long as the federal government doesn't start to enforce prohibition. That's my understanding, yeah. And federal law enforcement can legally enforce the fact that cannabis really does remain a Schedule One drug. Even to this day. To this day, that's right. Okay, but cannabis has been used for medical purposes for a while now, right? Yeah, for, for a pretty long time, cannabis has been used to treat like multiple ailments. And in the United States, it's been used for a really wide variety of pathological states. So this includes things like chronic pain, nausea, anorexia, inflammatory bowel disease, multiple sclerosis-associated spasticity, uh, mood disorders, sleep disorders, uh, seizures, and Tourette syndrome. Okay, but has it been proven to be effective for all of these conditions? Right, so not quite. And as of 2016, the only what might be considered high-quality data uh, a group writing a review on this topic could find were for chronic pain, neuropathic pain, and uh, multiple sclerosis-associated spasticity. Then there were some studies with what they considered to be low-quality evidence for nausea, vomiting, weight gain for folks suffering from AIDS, uh, sleep disorders, and Tourette syndrome. That doesn't mean, of course, that it won't prove to be effective for these conditions, just that the evidence supporting them uh, supporting its use isn't definitive at this point. And an interesting finding this past year is that there appears to be a gender-specific effect of cannabis on pain. It turned out that males exhibited greater cannabis-induced analgesia, or, or reductions of pain, than females. But females experienced a small increase in pain tolerance shortly after smoking. Okay, what's the difference between males having greater analgesia and females having increased pain tolerance. It seems like the same thing. Right. It, it does seem sort of like a semantic difference, right? But there is a subtle difference. So pain tolerance is like the maximum level of pain that you're willing to tolerate, right, as, as the name implies. Analgesia is reducing the severity of pain, right? So yeah, it, it can have an effect on pain tolerance, but there's just slightly different uh, mechanisms that are that are involved in pain perception. Okay, so so imagine, right, you're sitting there and somebody is torturing you, right? Like you are right now. <laughs> How dare you, <laughs> right? So if you have a, a heightened pain tolerance, right, you will be willing to sit there for an extended, for, for a longer period of time. But if I'm giving you an analgesia, the amount that you're suffering during that torture that I'm not doing to you <laughs> is less severe. So it's sort of bluntening the severity of the pain as opposed to increasing your willingness to tolerate the pain. Okay. And they are related for sure, but it's just slightly different mechanisms. Okay. It's just an interesting study result that men and women respond differently. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> okay. So that's for cannabis specifically though. Aren't there pharmaceutical pills that have THC in them? Yeah, basically. So. There's dronabinol, for, for example, or marinol, which is a medication prescribed for uh, wasting related to AIDS, uh, as well as chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. And, and then there's a nabilone, or sesamet, uh, which has sort of similar properties. And both of these are approved by the FDA. There's a third called Sativex, which is actually an oral spray. Uh, and it's approved in uh, Canada and the UK, uh, which is used for neuropathic pain in multiple sclerosis, as well as cancer-associated pain. And it has some CBD in addition to THC and is much faster acting. All right. So do we have an idea of how many people are smoking, vaping, or eating cannabis? Well, right. So it, it's, of course, it's difficult to quantify, right? It's not always easy to get people to respond to surveys where they'd essentially be admitting to acquiring and using a very illegal substance, right? Uh, but I've seen estimates 
that about 100 million adults in the U.S. have ever used cannabis. And so that's almost half of U.S. adults, given that there are about 250 million adults in the United States. And what about among teens? Right. So according to one of the big survey efforts to track drug use uh, overall among youth called uh, Monitoring the Future, drug use, apart from cannabis, in general, is the lowest it's been since they started doing the survey. And so this includes alcohol, cigarettes, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, inhalants, and sedatives. When it comes to cannabis and synthetic cannabinoids like K2 or spice that you might have heard of, um, there's been a five-year decline. And this is also true, by the way, for prescription opioids, hallucinogens, amphetamines, and over-the-counter hallucinatory drugs. What kind of hallucinatory drugs are over-the-counter? Oh, it's, it's a specific drug. It's called dextromethorphan. So, oh, the cough medicine. Yes, right. DXM, okay. right? Robo tripping. Yeah, that's what those kids get up to these days. <laughs> okay, it's been like decades that they've been doing that. It's not like a new thing. Okay, so the one thing that you always bring up when people ask you about the health consequences of smoking weed is adolescence. Is there something unique about what happens when teens are exposed? Yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. The short story is that there's something unique about the developmental state of the adolescent brain. Basically, the brain is still growing, and cannabinoid signaling influences the trajectory of this growth. And by that, you mean that there are cannabinoids that our body makes that regulate the growth of our brain? Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So our body synthesizes its own cannabinoids called endocannabinoids, or endogenous cannabinoids. And so to be specific, we're talking about molecules called anandamide, uh, 2-AG, and then a number of other related endogenous fatty molecules with cannabinoid-like activity. Okay, and so how does cannabis affect the growth of the brain in teens? Well, the brain is rapidly changing throughout childhood and into adolescence. So something to keep in mind is that there are constantly new synaptic connections being generated and degraded. In other words, there's a balance between synaptogenesis and synaptic pruning. So it's like a topiary that's constantly growing and being refined. Topiaries, you mean those big bush shrub shrubberies? <laughs> sculptures, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, so to keep the shape of a plant elephant or rabbit or whatever, all of the new leaves that grow have to be pruned back, right? Like Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a, quite a reference. Uh, but so the same sort of process is going on in the brain. But the process of pruning in the brain is regulated by things like activation patterns in the brain or signaling molecules like hormones and genetic inheritance. And I imagine that it doesn't involve chainsaws or shears yes. or hands made of scissors. That's I, that's correct. At least I haven't seen any research to suggest otherwise. <laughs> okay, so you say that the patterns of activation influence synaptic pruning. Does that mean like the various experiences that you have can influence which synapses are kept and which are eliminated? Yeah, that's a major factor. And so experiences like trauma or education, uh, and then subtler experiences like interactions with parents and peers will influence this process. But importantly to our conversation here, exposure to drugs will also alter this process. And so broadly speaking, as we age, we experience cortical thinning along with the segregation of connections between nearby regions in the brain. There's an increase in white matter and long range connectivity. Gray matter decreases after a peak in childhood that then decreases during the early 20s. Cortical thickness tends to peak around ages two to four and then steadily declines through into adulthood. White matter, however, increases during adolescence into young adulthood. There tends to be greater structural connectivity between brain regions that allows more efficient communication between frontal and subcortical regions. 
And so endogenous cannabinoids will influence this process at many levels. So let's focus on one, for example, right? Particularly during adolescence, there's a significant increase in Q-elicited activation of an area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. And the nucleus accumbens receives very significant innervation from the dopamine-producing ventral midbrain, right? The ventral tegmental area that we talked about earlier. In adolescence, there's an increase of the reactivity of this brain region in response to appetitive stimuli. Okay, that was a lot of big words. <laughs> but if I, get, if I have this straight... This nucleus accumbens area becomes even more active when a teenager sees something that they want or that's attractive than it does in adulthood. Right. That's what some research indicates. Yes. And so one explanation for this has been that this reward responsivity comes online earlier in development than the more slowly maturing prefrontal cortex, which among a great many processes, is capable of exerting inhibitory control over urges. So, so like one way to potentially explain this might be that, that when you see a slice of pizza or like strawberry ice cream or something, you immediately perceive those things as delicious to you and instinctively you want to eat it. Those are my favorite foods. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. So, but perhaps you know you've already had enough to eat today, right? Or that it's maybe a silly time to eat a bunch of ice cream, strawberry ice cream in the morning, right? That's ridiculous. <laughs> okay. But that secondary consideration will involve signaling from the prefrontal cortex, I mean, among other things as well. Um, well, given that adolescent brains exhibit what might be called like an overvalue of potential reward in the form of higher dopamine signaling relative to the adult brain, coupled with an underestimation of risk, and that cannabis, among other things, elevates dopamine signaling, the fundamental system of weighing risk and reward will be altered by cannabis exposure in adolescence. Okay, so basically all of that was a really complex way of saying that adolescents, whose brains are already bad at weighing costs and benefits, uh, if they smoke cannabis, uh, may contribute even further to that disrupted ability to weigh costs and benefits. Yeah, it's, it's certainly possible. So, but keep in mind, it's tough to study exactly what changes in the brain of a human after drug use for obvious reasons, right? You can't exactly crack it open and peek inside at a molecular level. As a result, we need to rely on correlative research coupled with molecular research in animal models. Correlative research, meaning like most teens who smoke weed tend to experience these particular changes in academic performance and other things like that. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, for a long time, there was this hypothesis that let lower socioeconomic status explained links between cannabis use and poor academic performance and mental health. However, a recent study challenged this idea and found that persistent use of cannabis throughout the four years of high school was associated with lower GPAs and lower SAT scores. This wasn't necessarily unique to cannabis, though. Uh, you know, persistent use of alcohol and tobacco also resulted in similar trends. The kids that they included in their sample, though, were from upper middle class communities. All right, so basically the study showed that this decline in scores can't just be attributed to the fewer resources available to the kids uh, who can't afford access to them. Yeah, that's what it seems like. And given the fact that this effect was not unique to cannabis, but was observed from tobacco and alcohol as well, it's tempting to explain these effects by focusing on the pharmacological activity that they all share. Like what all of those three drugs do to the brain. Right, and what they all do, at a minimum, is alter dopamine signaling in that ventral midbrain area, the ventral tegmental area. But then, some of the other broad changes in the brain after cannabis use include uh, increased gray matter density, likely due to more branching dendrites, in the amygdala and striatum. 
altered insular gray matter volumes as well, and then also altered cerebellar volumes. And there are similarly broad changes in the architecture of white matter. But the challenge here is trying to tie these structural changes to actual functional changes, and that can be very difficult to nail down. Okay, so that you also mentioned earlier that there are molecular studies in animal models. So what kinds of changes are we talking about that we can measure in animal models? Well, the, the equivalent of adolescent rats exhibit changes in a variety of systems after being treated with THC. So let's start at the behavioral level first. This group, this research group, saw poorer memory performance in adult male rats who were treated with THC during adolescence. They also saw rodent analogs of what we would call depression in humans. They tended to not be as interested in sweet flavors, and they'd give up swimming earlier than rats who weren't treated with THC during adolescence. And so if you compare these little guys who were treated with THC during adolescence, uh, uh, who were exhibiting these depression-like you know, behaviors, uh, to other male rats who were not treated with THC during adolescence but were treated in adulthood, it was only the rats who were treated during adolescence who exhibited this depression-like behavior. Ooh, so that would imply that exposure during the teenage years might increase the likelihood that an adult will eventually suffer from depression. It's possible, yes. And of course, there's going to be a variety of molecular changes, right? It's pretty boring to just rattle off a bunch of proteins and signaling molecules that change in response to a given treatment. But what can be interesting in this case is that there seem to be gender-specific changes. Like changes that only occur in one sex and not the other. Right, yeah. Or that occur more in one sex than the other. So, for example, there were glutamatergic synaptic changes that occurred in both sexes of rat, right? However, the predominant change in the prevalence of glutamate synapses in males was found in the hippocampus. In particular, it was increased expression of two factors, synaptophysin and PSD95, in the hippocampus of adult rats treated with THC during adolescence. In female rats, however, these same types of changes were most prominent in the prefrontal cortex. So does this difference have to do with torture again? <laughs> no, it does not have to do with torture. <laughs> okay, so glutamate signaling changes more in the hippocampus in male rats and the prefrontal cortex in female rats. Right. Uh, another change that occurs in the brain as it matures is that there's a switch in the types of subunits that comprise one of the glutamate receptors. You have a sort of immature version that then switches over to an adult version. And for those folks interested in the specifics, we're talking about the NMDA receptor. And it's shifting from having more GLU-N2B subunits to having more GLU-N2A subunits. Well, after being treated in adolescence, adult rats exhibited a persistent presence of the immature version in the hippocampus. And similar alterations occur at, other, uh, at the other primary glutamate receptor, the AMPA receptor in the hippocampus. Adult male rats exposed to THC during adolescence appear to have increased AMPA receptor expression in general in the hippocampus. In female rats similarly treated, the same dynamic occurred but in the prefrontal cortex, right, not the hippocampus. And this suggests that adolescent exposure to THC may promote long-term alterations in glutamatergic synapses in both sexes, but there's some difference in the anatomical locations at which they occur. Another interesting molecular change that I'll just close this, this section with that uh, the group ob observed was increased expression of inflammatory markers like TNF-alpha and INOS, INOS, along with the reduction of anti-inflammatory markers like uh, interleukin-10 uh, in, in a certain type of brain cell called an astrocyte. When you say inflammation, I think of the immune system and like bruises. Are we talking about the same thing when we discuss inflammation in the brain? 
Yes, actually several of the same molecules that signal in the immune system are also present in the brain. And part of the way that synapses are either maintained or eliminated, right, through synaptic pruning are through these very signaling molecules. And astrocytes, right, a type of glial cell, play a significant role in this regulation. Anyways, it's clear that exposure to cannabis during adolescence is associated with some undesirable changes in the brain. And at this point, we're just enumerating exactly what changes in the brain and how severe or permanent those changes are. I mean, on top of that, a longitudinal study published in 2012 showed that earlier onset of use is associated with impairment of greater severity. So the earlier you start using cannabis, the worse the potential disruptions to your brain development were. That's right. Uh, the study showed that persistent cannabis use starting in adolescence and, and not adulthood uh, was associated with declines in performance on various psychometric tests. And what about exposure even earlier than that, like in the womb? I can imagine that's not the best thing for your brain. That's right. And so um, some studies have shown that gestational THC exposure is associated with altered mRNA expression and dopamine receptor gene expression. And this will translate to a modified dopamine signaling system at birth. And, you know, it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine that similar types of fundamental structural alterations will almost certainly occur at other targets beyond just dopamine-related ones. All right. So we've been talking a lot about cannabis or cannabinoid exposure during adolescence. What about exposure during adulthood? Do we know much about the long-term effects of use in adults? Well, like we said in the last podcast, it's very difficult to study long-term effects in adults. Broadly speaking, chronic use can be associated with cognitive impairments and mood conditions in some folks, right? When it comes to its effects on mood, perhaps it's a bit less surprising that a drug people do that makes them feel calm or just they do for fun might be associated with longer lasting changes in mood. What's perhaps a bit more surprising are the long lasting effects on cognition and learning and memory in some folks. Yeah, one of the things I think most people associate with smoking weed is reduced short term memory. But does this translate beyond things just like forgetting where you put your keys? Right, right. Well, I found an interesting study that focused specifically on learning complex motor behaviors, like playing the piano or writing or driving or, or like playing sports, for example. The way this works is that a series of simpler behavioral actions are sort of deployed in certain sequences. Like, for example, think of what it's like when a toddler is learning how to, to walk. Right? You're literally watching the brain try and solve the problem of activating the right muscles at just the right time to just the right level of force to do multiple things, right? Including maintaining balance, aiming, and moving forward, right? It's kind of a strange way to look at it, but <laughs> I can see what you mean. Yeah, and many of the same, or at least very similar, circuits involved in learning motor behaviors underlie the development of drug use behavior and addiction. So first of all, dopamine plays a very significant role in the control of voluntary movement, right? And this becomes tragically obvious in folks suffering from Parkinson's disease, as their dopamine-producing neurons in a part of the motor circuit begin to die. One of the treatments, by the way, for Parkinson's is to treat with a molecule called levodopa, or L-dopa, which is kind of like boosting levels of dopamine to compensate for these reductions in, uh, in endogenous dopamine. Interestingly, some patients will experience significant disruptions of impulse control abilities as well as cognitive impairments. And this begins to make sense when you start to study the actual circuitry of mood and movement. Parallel to the motor responsibilities of the dopamine-producing neurons affected by Parkinson's, there are other dopamine-producing neurons just next door that regulate reward and drug use patterns. The motor circuit that we're talking about is a substantia nigra in the ventral midbrain sending dopamine signals to the striatum. 
The mood-related circuit is the ventral tegmental area sending dopamine signals to that structure called the nucleus accumbens, right, that we talked about before, as well as the prefrontal cortex. So these structures, these dopamine-producing structures, are literally right next to each other. The substantia nigra and the ventral tegmental area are direct neighbors. And so this is just one example of how motor activity and mood are inextricably linked together. In fact, I would probably go so far as to bet that in the complete absence of any mood-related signaling, there probably would be little to no voluntary motor behavior at all. Okay, so how does cannabis come into play here? Well, uh, chronic long-term cannabis has been shown to result in reduced dopamine levels in the striatum, that motor-related structure that receives dopamine from the substantia nigra. However, the same is true in the nucleus accumbens, right, that receives dopamine from the ventral tegmental area. So this may be a substrate for how cannabis, in some folks, through its rewarding effects, can cause a transformation of goal-directed behavior, like someone making the decision to smoke some pot to relax or feel creative, into a behavioral and emotional relationship that more closely resembles a habit. And by the way, this kind of dynamic wouldn't necessarily be specific to cannabis. This is likely true in some respect for most drugs that are used recreationally. But there is something unique about how cannabis and cannabinoids will interact with these circuits, and it involves where cannabinoid receptors are found in the brain. So you're saying that it resembles a habit, so it's kind of like an addiction, but not quite an addiction. Right, so, so keep in mind, right, what exactly is an addiction? An addiction is the continued use of a drug or continued behavior, despite the fact that you know something negative is gonna happen if you keep doing it, right? And so that's not the same thing as a habit. You know, you can have a habit where, I don't know, you always wash your dishes before you brush your teeth. You know, that's not an addiction, it's just a habit. You just habitually do that thing. What we're talking about is a transition from goal-directed behavior where my goal right now is to have fun and relax and feel creative, listen to some fish or whatever, and smoke some pot. The transition from that to smoking pot, right? And that becomes the sort of goal because the signaling associated with the motor activity of smoking pot becomes inextricably linked with the mood associated uh, with its effects. Right? And so that's probably true for pretty much every drug that has effects on that dopamine signal. Now, what can make it become an addiction is whether or not that signal is high enough to, make you, to motivate you to do things that are against your best interests. Right? So, like for example, you don't have enough money to afford pot anymore, but you continue buying it despite that fact. Despite the, that you know you're not going to be able to pay rent or you know, whatever it might be. Interesting. <laughs> okay. So I remember you saying that cannabinoid receptors are all over the place in the brain and body. Yes, so they're very widely expressed. And without going into too much detail on how those receptors function, at least not quite yet, not in this episode, there are two broad subtypes of cannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2. CB1 receptors are mostly present in the brain, but can also be found in other organ systems like the kidney, liver, and lungs. CB2 receptors are more common peripherally. So CB1 receptors uh, they're capable of modifying dopamine, GABA, and glutamate signaling in a variety of brain regions, including movement-related circuits. Well, some folks exhibit slower reaction times after smoking weed, as well as impaired attention, short-term memory, right? For example, a group used a task called the Stop uh, Signal Task, where people respond as quickly as they can to a stimulus. But in some trials, the stimulus is followed by another signal, and people need to inhibit their response. Okay, so basically it's like if I'm looking at a screen, and I'm told to press a button every time I see the screen flash green, right? But if the green flash is followed by a red flash, I have to prevent myself from pushing the button. Yeah, that, that's right. 
And so it turned out that folks who had just smoked weed had slower reaction times in the stop trials, like the trials where a red light followed a green light, right, like in your example. They also tended to exhibit a greater frequency of no response at all, as well as just errors in not inhibiting responses. And these effects were greatest 30 minutes to three and a half hours after smoking, but they disappeared five and a half hours after smoking. But not everybody exhibited these impairments. More globally though, some interesting studies have evaluated what's called functional connectivity. Basically by sort of indirectly measuring changes in brain activity that occur in one area of the brain, if you look around at the rest of the brain for other areas that have activity, there's a chance that those various other areas are connected to the area you started looking at uh, somehow, right? And so if you do that in folks who smoke weed, they had greater functional connectivity between the prefrontal cortex and various subcortical areas, like the substantia nigra, for example, during that stop signal task. So it's possible that cannabis users exert greater effort to inhibit an ongoing response in a task. So is it kind of like their brains are trying to compensate to accomplish the same goal? That's one possible interpretation, yeah. Okay, so that's a pretty specific effect on like motor learning and memory and control. What about something broader? Uh, like when people ask if cannabis is good or bad for them, I think they're most interested in knowing if it's going to disturb their brain health and cognitive abilities. Yeah, I, th I think you're probably right. Of course, again, it's, it's tough to know definitively for all the reasons we've discussed in the past, right? However, some efforts uh, try to look at the findings of multiple studies that try to evaluate the effects of heavy use of cannabis on cognition. So for example, one meta-analysis indicated that compared to non-users, Cannabis users performed worse on measures of global neuropsychiatric functions. So these are things like executive function, attention, learning and memory, motor skills, and verbal abilities. The differences weren't massive in this case, but it was identified that there were some differences. Another meta-analysis, however, found that there really wasn't a discernible difference between users and non-users on these neuropsychiatric tests. The authors of this review, which reads almost like a position paper from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, or NIDA, one of whom, one of these authors, by the way, was the director of NIDA, suggests that these findings may indicate that the deficits that they measured in, in one of those meta-analysis may well recover with abstinence. And there's another effect that was recently published that I found pretty interesting. And that is that there appears to be a change in taste perception after smoking cannabis. And this wasn't just that smoking dulls your taste buds to make you want stronger flavors. So yeah, that actually is an effect. Smokers of both tobacco and cannabis, right after smoking, uh, uh, they tend to experience altered taste perception such, such that it leads to a preference for stronger tastings and a reduced ability to taste specific flavors as well as a higher tolerance for stronger tastings. Interestingly though, people who use multiple drugs as well as people who just use cannabis tended to have a higher preference for salty and sour tastings than people who abstained from drugs. And another study showed that people who smoked cannabis and tobacco daily had a higher preference for sweet and spicy tastings relative to people who don't consume those drugs. Okay, so there's the stereotype of the lazy stoner, right? Where a pot smoker will just hang out all day on the couch and watch TV and eat Cheetos. <laughs> How accurate is that stereotype? Well, I mean, it's obviously not true for all pot smokers, right? There are plenty of highly productive pot smokers and plenty of more lethargic weed smokers, right? So, so it might be tempting to just conclude that it's not necessarily the weed that's making people lazy, but it's just sort of incidental. However, there are some studies that suggest that heavy and chronic cannabis use does seem to bias people towards being amotivational. And this manifests in reduced motivation for reward-related behaviors. And at a molecular level, 
there's reduced dopamine synth uh, synthesis capacity in the striatum. And some imaging studies in humans suggest that this is associated with a tendency towards sort of negative emotionality. But we still don't know if it's actually weed making people a certain way or if the people who by their nature and personality were a certain way to begin with tend to smoke weed more. That is an excellent point, exactly the case. Yes, that, that's the challenge with these correlative studies. Okay, so there's reduced dopamine signal, signaling in the striatum, and this can sort of bump people out. That's the interpretation. And it might be part of what makes some people respond to chronic use of cannabis with lethargy and a lack of motivation. But it's important to note that addiction to cannabis has been documented to occur in only about 9% of users. And this is influenced by a variety of factors that include how early on in development right, use began, as, as we were talking about earlier, or how much was used, and almost certainly genetic factors as well. So you can become addicted to cannabis. Oh yes, right, right, right. Yeah, so th this is definitely one of the most frequent misconceptions that I encounter when, you know, I'm on Periscope, like live streaming. Um, and that is that perhaps, I think it's probably attributable to the fact that addiction to cannabis isn't quite as severe as addiction to other addictive drugs, but it's certainly addictive. Any drug that somebody does that makes them feel good, that helps them cope with anxiety, that helps them sleep, you know, can potentially become addictive. So, so absolutely. What about the Cheetos part of my stereotypical stoner? Do we know what causes the munchies? Actually, a recent study that uses many of the same techniques that I use in my experiments did identify a particular action of cannabis on CB1 receptors in a circuit involved in feeding and appetite, specifically in neurons that are called POMC neurons, or pro-opio-melanocortin neurons, POMC, an interaction with CB1 receptors on those neurons uh, that are present in the hypothalamus specifically seems to drive the feeding behavior that we might associate with cannabis consumption. Okay, and another one of the things that we talked about in the past and uh, a topic that your Periscope audience often asks about is how cannabis is associated with psychosis in some people. What's the relationship there? What do we know? Well, there's been an association between the two for a while now, and a way to think about the potential relationships between cannabis and psychosis and schizophrenia can be one or more of three things, right? There can just be a direct effect of cannabis causing psychosis and or schizophrenia, right? However, there could also just be a shared etiology, it, meaning in folks who tend to be physiological predisposed to developing psychosis or schizophrenia, there might also be a tendency to have a predilection for drug use and perhaps even cannabis use specifically. And then finally, there's the possibility that people with schizophrenia may be likely to self-medicate, right, to cope uh, with cannabis to alleviate the severity of symptoms. Right, so that probably covers all the bases, but is there for sure a relationship? Yeah, that, I mean, there's pretty much no question that there's a relationship there. THC, particularly at pretty high doses, will cause symptoms of psychosis that are acute but dose-dependent, meaning that there's a direct relationship between the dose of THC and development of psychosis in some people. And on top of that, studies have shown a correlation between cannabis use and the development of schizophrenia. And as is the case with other issues related to cannabis use, earlier age of onset uh, of use right, tends to correlate with age of onset of psychosis, including uh, schizophrenia diagnoses. And the association tends to be stronger in folks who smoked a lot and frequently during adolescence. But most people who smoke cannabis don't ever develop schizophrenia, meaning that it's neither necessary nor sufficient to smoke weed to develop schizophrenia. Okay, so there's clearly some effect or relationship there, 
but it's more complicated than just saying cannabis causes schizophrenia. That's right. Uh, it's, it's important to remember that psychosis and schizophrenia result from interactions between many factors. And the strongest predictor of schizophrenia is having a close family member with schizophrenia. In fact, one study indicated that cannabis use leading to schizophrenia mostly occurred in people that have family histories of schizophrenia relative to those who don't have family histories. So is genetics playing a major role here too? Yeah, so an interaction between genotype, cannabis use, and psychosis has been studied, and certain genes have emerged as risk factors. Specifically, a certain allele for the dopamine D2 receptor increased the likelihood of psychotic disorders significantly, and occasional cannabis smokers exhibited a threefold higher likelihood over non-smokers, while daily smokers of cannabis had a five-fold higher likelihood of developing schizophrenia. Another short nucleotide polymorphism is in the catechol O-methyltransferase gene, or the COMPT gene, with carriers being more likely to develop schizophrenia if they use cannabis compared to people without that short nucleotide polymorphism. And then finally, another gene called AKT1 exhibited an interaction with cannabis use, with increased likelihoods of psychosis being two times higher in those who never smoked weed and seven times greater in those who smoked daily. So basically, if you inherited some or several of these genes, you're at a greater risk of developing schizophrenia. And if you not only inherited some of these genes, but you also smoke weed, then you're at an even greater risk of developing schizophrenia. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so once again, not a straightforward answer here. <laughs> yeah, I know, it gets to be a little disappointing. Well, let's talk about why people smoke pot in the first place. What are its recreational effects? Well, as we've been saying, it's very complicated from a pharmacological perspective. It activates the activities of a wide variety of circuits, but among that variety is that change in dopamine signaling. In particular, cannabinoids appear to activate cannabinoid receptors on GABAergic neurons in the ventral tegmental area, which is that area that sends dopamine signals to the nucleus accumbens that we discussed earlier. Basically, THC seems to do something that we call disinhibit, dopamine-producing cells in this brain region. And this effect right there, that'll be intrinsically rewarding. Interestingly though, different doses of THC will have different effects on dopamine. So just to start, THC exposure can cause increased dopamine release, right? As well as more dopamine synthesis, which is also kind of interesting. But lower doses are indeed associated with increased conversion of tyrosine, the precursor to dopamine, into dopamine. Higher doses though, actually were associated with reduced dopamine synthesis. So it can make you make more dopamine, but there's kind of a sweet spot. Yeah, that, that seems to be the case. And THC has been shown to increase the protein levels of the enzyme that synthesizes dopamine, tyrosine hydroxylase. Repeated use, though, actually has been associated with reduced hippocampal dopamine and reduced dopamine metabolism in the medial prefrontal cortex. And this doesn't appear to happen in other brain regions like the nucleus accumbens. So this might be part of what makes cannabis remain appealing to those folks who end up smoking it more regularly. And what about the self-medicating aspect to drug use? Could that play a part in why people smoke? Yes, that's a significant aspect to drug use in general. And it also seems to be the case when it comes to cannabis use. First of all, both major depressive disorder and, surprisingly, the likelihood of cannabis use are pretty heritable traits, with depression having a 31-42% to heritability due to additive genetic factors, excluding environmental factors, and cannabis use initiation being 40-48% to heritable. 
And when you say heritable, do you mean genetically heritable? Not quite. So heritability can be a fairly difficult concept to get one's hands around, but it basically means that between 40 to 48% of variation in cannabis use behaviors is explainable by genetics. There are clearly environmental factors that'll come into play here too, of course, right? Anyways, uh, a study found that there's a significant relationship between cannabis use and major depression with a significant genetic correlation between the two traits. There are particular regions of the genome that were identified as likely mediating this relationship, but to suffice it to say that there are genetic loci that are specific to depression and some that are specific to susceptibility to cannabis de uh, uh, dependence. But then there are also loci that influence both. By the way, the term for a gene that can influence two things like that is pleiotropic. So a gene that influences both depression and cannabis use behaviors is exerting pleiotropic effects. This, however, hasn't been enough to identify specific biological pathways in this comorbidity, and there are almost certainly unique interacting pathways with considerable variability in how people ultimately behave, but these pathways are what determine predispositions to cannabis use and depression. Okay, so that's depression. What about anxiety? Right. There was actually a study that evaluated anxiety sensitivity as a possible underlying factor in associating anxious arousal with cannabis and alcohol use. The group found indirect associations of anxiety with cannabis use problems and withdrawal symptoms, coping with anxiety with cannabis, as well as hazardous drinking and use problems. So there was just an association between being anxious and the use of cannabis and alcohol? Basically, but more specifically, it was an association between sensitivity to anxiety and problematic usage patterns. Gotcha. So you're saying that people that are a bit more sensitive to anxious states may be at risk of developing substance use problems. Exactly. Okay, so one of the things that I've heard about with regards to cannabis is the potential use for epilepsy treatment. Have you read anything about that? Sure, so there's actually a surprisingly long history of cannabis being used as an anticonvulsant. As far back as 1557, there are reports of using hemp seeds to treat epilepsy, and a more thorough report from 1840 identifying the use of cannabis by Ayurvedic practitioners in India treating an infant with convulsions, identifying success, uh, successful outcomes. More recently though, experiments showed that seizure thresholds, or basically like the likelihood of a seizure occurring, is in part regulated by the cannabinoid 1 receptor, the CB1 receptor. Subsequently, studies suggested that among the most common type of seizures that don't respond to conventional first-line treatments, THC was capable of significantly reducing their frequency, more effectively, in fact, than even heavy sedatives. And there's a growing body of anecdotal evidence indicating that, uh, the, the, indicating the potential efficacy of, of cannabinoids in the treatment of seizures. And so there are like case studies from Italy and Germany, both reported uh, uh, some improvements in seizures following THC treatment. And then with regards to identifying the specific mechanism by which cannabis might be helpful in this application, it's still kind of very early days. More work needs to be done for us to both understand how exactly cannabinoids can be helpful in these cases, as well as for us to understand which cases are best treated with cannabinoids rather than our current standard of care. In fact, frankly, it's, it's still early days with regards to the potential use of cannabis to treat a variety of conditions. I mean, I found this one review that's just absolutely massive that discusses the endocannabinoid system as a potential target for the development of therapeutics in general. And the review literally talks about like dozens of potential conditions. I wrote down a, a list just to sort of prove my point. 
So we're talking appetite regulation, pain and inflammation, as we discussed earlier, neurotoxicity and traumatic brain injury, multiple sclerosis, again, as we discussed, spinal cord injury, movement disorders like Parkinson's and its uh, treatment-associated dyskinesias, uh, Huntington's disease, Tourette's syndrome, tardive dyskinesia, uh, dystonia, schizophrenia, anxiety and depression, insomnia, nausea, drug addiction, cardiovascular disorders, hypertension, circulatory shock, atherosclerosis, asthma, glaucoma, cancer, gastrointestinal liver disorders, inflammatory bowel disease, bowel disease arthritis. <sighs> yeah, so there's a lot of conditions that are being explored for the potential application of cannabinoids. <laughs> Holy crap, that is a pretty long list. <laughs> but can it fix your face? Oh, oh, snap, burn. <laughs> yeah, okay. So and keep in mind that this doesn't mean that it's cannabis specifically that might be used to target all of those diseases and disorders, but rather the endogenous cannabinoid signaling system with which cannabis interacts. Do you think that with the recent we wave of legalization that we'll have more studies that show uh, cannabis treatments and the, their effect on these potential diseases? I mean, I don't just think that. Nora Volko, the director of NIDA, the National Institute of Drug, Abu uh, Drug Abuse, also thinks that. So yeah, that, that's one thing that we can potentially look forward to. Anyways, we're talking about an extremely complex system with regulatory roles in such a wide array of human physiology that it could very well represent an opportunity to alleviate the symptoms of an equally wide array of conditions. However, given how broad its activity is, the challenge will be narrowing down the activity of a therapeutic to only interact with the system in a way that we want it to, in a more targeted way. It'll be interesting to watch how work progresses in these efforts. In any case, there's a lot that we didn't even get to. While studying cannabis has been fraught with challenges for a variety of reasons, and the relationship between humans and cannabis are numerous and historical, the relationship of society with the use of this drug in particular is changing very rapidly, and research into its activities ramping up considerably. So we're about to learn quite a bit more about what cannabis and its cannabinoids do in the human body. And as a result, we're gonna learn quite a bit about how this pervasive signaling system regulates human development, physiology, and consciousness.